Welcome to the Love Out Loud podcast, where we have conversations that actualize a civilization of love by 2030, a place to learn how to make love actionable and solidify the ambiguity of what love-based leadership looks like in the new world. And if you're new to the Love Out Loud family, welcome and we love you. You're now a part of a growing global community dedicated to living life differently. So jump in our Telegram group to meet your new tribe. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us on the Love Out Loud podcast. And, you know, I'm so excited to dive into your lens of love in the world because after meeting you the first time, I was so enthralled and curious and intrigued and captivated by the sorts of spaces you would have found yourself in through your lifetime um, of work. And um, I can only imagine the sensitivity of some of the conversations that you've been you know, mediating through your work with family officers and um, corporate individuals and executives and powerful leaders in the world, coming to you as trusted, confidant, facilitator. Um, and Victoria and I were actually introduced by our amazing copywriter who said, you know, this, this, this might seem like a bit of a random introduction, but I feel like you're both coming from really similar places as leaders um, in your work in the world. And they couldn't have been more more correct. So shout out to you, Bay. But Victoria, a, a formal and official welcome to the Love Out Loud podcast. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's been really a thrill to meet you and uh, yeah, love Bayardo and his his talents too. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm I'm not so into sort of reading out the the formal bio, although although we'll do that and put that in the, the footnotes for, for all of the listeners, but what I really love to begin with is um is who you are, who's the person that the listeners are listening to, and what what was the uh, the moments that kind of led you to want to go down the route of um being an individual in the world that was having the conversations other people didn't want to have. That that's probably the the starting point of my curiosity. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Um, you know, there's lots of times when I've jumped into difficult conversations and uh, and learn from them, you know, face first and, and then with some thoughtful planning. Um, who I am is um, I'm in a, a matriarch in a family business. I'm a grandmother and I'm a facilitator that works with family businesses and uh, entrepreneurs to help them move through anxiety and be able to communicate and create the succession and legacy that they hope for with with more ease is really what I hope mm, beautiful and so you're I love that that terminology you're the matriarch of, of the family business and was this was this something that you inherited from quite an early age or was it something that that came later in life no I mean my husband really so we have two companies I have my own consulting practice and then we have a family business and when I say the word matriarch I say it a bit loosely because I'm saying that <laughs> I'm the one that's managing the anxiety of the family, but I'm not working in the day-to-day business. Right. Um, some, some might call that the family leader. Um, but so that's how I use the word matriarch loosely. Okay. Not as, not as the, the, the ruler. <laughs> I'm the ruler. <laughs> in a way, in a way that's, uh, that's the position of influence, you know, arguably. Um, so the family business, was this something that, that grew, you know, through your, your partnership with, with your husband um, from the very beginning or something that came later in life? He's been um, 
working with family businesses his whole life in the financial aspect. And I've always worked with entrepreneurs and I sort of shifted into family businesses because a lot of the entrepreneurs needed help in their families, not just on their own. So I've, I've sort of, I'm separate, like a Chinese wall with his company, um, but we both service the same um, market. Uh, interesting. So often it's working with the same clients, but coming at it from different um, different perspectives. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he would call my skills soft skills. I would call his more financial skills. I'm not going to call them hard skills. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. That makes sense. And how long has that collaboration been been taking place? Um, this has been for the last seven years um, when I focus more on family businesses. And when when was the line in the sun for you where you were like, you know what, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna work in the business. <laughs> I'm just um, well, I, yeah, I haven't worked with him in the business. We decided that that was a dream of mine. Actually, I wanted to work with him because we both are hard workers. But we had um, other people say to us that the couples they knew that worked together aren't together. So that sort of scared me away a bit. And we're both pretty strong minded. So I've learned a lot about uh, conversations and conflict because of our relationship. Yeah, interesting. And I, w- I want to dive into this. But first, maybe let's let's go back. So for seven years, you've been running your consultancy or, or longer? Longer, yeah. I just shifted into family businesses in the last seven years. Okay, so going back to so the origins of, of what made you want to start that journey, was it um, an, an epiphany that that's what you wanted to do? Or was it just a growing journey of curiosity to move into that space? As one, I know working with entrepreneurs takes a takes a special kind of personality. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious, but when you when you discovered your, your talent for that, and how? Um, with entrepreneurs, I think it's, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. I'm married to an entrepreneur. I think like an entrepreneur, I've always run my business like one. And so it it resonated, you know, to have clients that were entrepreneurs because I could speak their language. I could understand their perspectives. I could have, you know, compassion for some of their problems. Mm -hmm. And then it segued into family businesses just because some of those entrepreneurs asked me to come in and do work with the the greater family, or I started getting recommendations to those people. And I'm finding it really fascinating because it's not about a one and done conversation with family businesses. They, they thrive with lots of interactions over time. So it's Mm -hmm. not like it's going to be fixed in one meeting, but it's more about changing the the trajectory of the, which way they're going in a positive way with love really. Trust, building trust, and that's definitely one of the themes. The themes I want to touch on, you know, your your wisdom and experiences of how to build trust in relationships, because I can mm-hmm. only imagine how fundamental that's been mm-hmm. you know, through through your journey. And and maybe um, what what would be your um, reflections on how that has been developed? Your skill um, in in being able to achieve trust. How has that been developed over your years working in this space? Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, there's lots of research on it. I think that for me, um, I've earned trust by, you know, being able to listen really well, to be able to understand and be compassionate to wh- whatever people are facing, and also to walk my talk to to be able to um, demonstrate that that I can be a leader so that I can encourage their leadership to also come forward. 
And was that um, was that always sort of innate, or was this something that um, you know, say someone was listening that uh, was really trying to develop? And I can imagine there would be deeper trust with with their team, um, but they really they're not they're not sure maybe why trust isn't present. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they might not even be able to determine why they don't trust or why their teams aren't trusting them. Um, through your experience, what what have you noticed? Well, I, I think I've failed forward a lot. I mean, when I was in my 20s, I was managing companies and um, I was sort of like Attila the Hun on, on steroids. And I felt yeah. like that was what a leader was. I really did. And I had to like really be torn down from the inside and realize that what I was doing wasn't working. And then I went into a journey of self-discovery of what actually would it mean to, to create trust. And part of that is, you know, just really listening, incorporating everybody's opinion, um, focusing on the other person, not, you know, like it's easy to call yourself a boss. It's not as easy to be a leader. So it's more interactive. Um, I really want to go into this depending on your level of comfortability, because this is always my, my interest with, with people doing amazing things in the world, the, the inner journey. No, you just use the time I had to get, torn down um on the insides and you know i think for for many of us we've had versions examples of that and one thing that i think doesn't happen enough in interviews like this and in general sharing is the realities of of what that journey actually means because my hunch is it's actually essential if you want to hold space for others if you want to lead and not just be a boss and create an environment where people can really flourish and grow and be more of themselves, it starts with you, right? Like you've got to, you've got to know how to do that for yourself first and foremost um, so that there isn't this unconscious rejection that's being projected out onto the world beyond you. And I'm into really telling like the, the gory reality of that because I think when people don't have stories to draw on, they think when they're in those moments um, that there's something wrong and it's not a natural part of the process. It has to occur for that kind of veil to be lifted. And I think for a more authentic leadership to start emerging. So uh, yeah, I would love to sort of just hear a deepening of your journey through that time for you. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it started um, from when I was six years old and I decided that I couldn't rely on anybody. And so therefore I was going to be fiercely independent. And that sort of grew into my late teens, early twenties. And at six years. Really, yeah, very clearly. Cause I wow. think I decided that in my family system, I couldn't trust, you know, what was going to happen, that I wouldn't be safe, that I had to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a, a process in my life of unlearning that belief so that I can trust and let other people in and connect with them more deeply. And um, I think, you know, just realizing we have a choice sometimes when we fail, like when, when I was not getting good reactions from my staff towards how I was leading them, I could have just kept going the way I was going or try something new. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's where we make a choice, whether we become, you know, more interdependent rather than being the fierce boss. Totally. But it, it doesn't, it definitely doesn't happen, you know, like that. So you, you were battling 
And I, I totally relate to that with this belief that I've got to do it all on my own. Like how many entrepreneurs feel that way? I, I truly think isolation is one of the most unspoken um, like war scars of, of a, especially a, a visionary entrepreneur that's kind of living in a version of reality that other people can't see. Um, was it, was it the challenging of that belief that started to, to cause that um, breakdown in internally for you and, and obviously a, a rebirth and, and what were the, what were the kind of, um, what were the milestones? How, how bad did the suffering have to get before you really started to uh, rethink some of your, your, your versions? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, realizing that my relationships weren't working the way I wanted to. And, you know, what I really wanted, what I think all of us really wanted was love, but somewhere in there, I felt like I couldn't trust. And so I started to choose very carefully who I trusted and, and created a little bit more of that. And then look at what happened in the relationships that didn't work. Like, what was my responsibility in that? You know, there's sayings like, what was the 2% truth? Even if it didn't seem obvious, there must have been something that I was a part of. I love that. The 2% truth. And is that, is that sort of a, an invitation to look through the other person's perspective? Mm-hmm. The 2% of everything is true. And, you know, that's one of the things when we're looking at having difficult conversations mm-hmm. to be able to have that beginner's mind of um, what, what could be mm-hmm. their perspective, what would be the 2% truth that might be true. And if we believe that, that maybe we're blind to it, we're going to be open to listening and to seeing what the other person's point of view is. I really, really like that. Um, and so talk, talk us through that process. Like if someone listening was wanting to, to apply that, you know, in, in their own situation, um, obviously that the first point of awareness is maybe I'm experiencing, you know, this frustration, things aren't mm-hmm. working the way I want them to work. And no, when I'm working with um, with leaders, I I like to explain that if you're feeling feelings of frustration, irritation, anger consistently, it's um it's a secondary reaction to a deeper emotional you know core issue that's maybe not being looked at. And mm-hmm. so, you notice in in your work with people, or even in your own journey, even let's let's stick to that. That was kind of the the first point of awareness that that started to emerge that it became like. You just felt so frustrated at, at what wasn't working that it forced you to start to to look to reflect. Yeah, and I, I think also the desire to have some of these relationships work. You know, I have a a son that I've had you know on and off times where we just had really messy um, periods of life because I care about him so much that I can overfunction in that situation, and I've realized I've had to really let go. And give him space to make his own choices. But when I was looking at the 2% truth about a particular time that we were going through, I went, I need to appreciate, you know, something about what he's doing that is really making me mad. And at this point, he was living with us and his room was sort of like a disaster. And so, <laughs> so, so I went, okay, so what's the 2% truth to, you know, that I can admire about him and and him living this way, which is very different than the way we live. And that was that he's confident enough in himself that he's willing to live however he wants without really, you know, concern about other people's approval. So I went, okay, well, that's an interesting way to be in life. 
Yeah, right. So it's an interesting take on that. And one that I'm sure so many moms are cringing out listening to this right now. <laughs> okay, it was, it took I, me some soul searching to find yeah, that. You had to dig really deep, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, but this is, a, this is a powerful reframe, you know, because what we don't consider a lot of the time when we're really stuck in what we, we think the truth is and when we're trying to impose that on another person's model of the world, um, how so often, and facilitation has taught me this, it's been one of the biggest gifts in, in that work for me, that whatever we think someone else's model of the world is, you know, 99.9% of the time we're so far away from the reality. And the only way that we can build that bridge is um, through listening. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, maybe like because that that practice of shifting perspectives the way you did with your son, it takes a, a level of, I don't know, psychological flexibility. Like how could someone begin that process of opening their that perspective? Like what what is a process you took yourself through? What was the soul searching you had to you had to do? Or the the well, I think I think it was really a desire to have a better relationship and knowing that, you know, that I was really only frustrating myself by getting angry. And I had to find a workaround. I mean, we ended up creating some boundaries where once we he had to make sure there was no plates of food under his bed, you know, because <laughs> his room was being vacuumed, things like that. But, um, you know, now he's in his 30s and we're still having interesting challenges and dialogues. And, you know, sometimes certain people in your family will push your buttons or or for whatever reason you get entangled in them easier. Yeah. Where, where else have you seen the, these two percent truths um, come out in the work you've done with with families where two people's models of the world are so different um, and so unexpectedly different to, to the two related parties? If yeah, well, I, I think about um, two brothers that I was working with and their dad had passed away and they'd taken over the business and they were just really at loggerheads with each other. And, and not only was the family going to blow up, but the business was going to blow up. So they called me in and I think that they, they really think differently. They're very different people. They had to honor those differences, but at the same time, they had to look for something that they appreciated in those differences and also look at where they were aligned, which was they were both very passionate about the business, even though they were really fighting like cats and dogs. So to look at what did they have in common that was true and, um, and then having them each look at what was the 2% truth of what the other was accusing them of, where would the truth be in that? So that could they learn from it, you know, where one was dragging his heels about decision-making the other one was like going at jet speed. There's a benefit to both, but together. What was the the shocking kind of um, unveiling through that process for them? I think the biggest, the biggest breakthrough was when they actually really saw each other as brothers in a vulnerable moment, instead of just looking at each other as adversaries in the business. And like going back to that childhood connection of like, they are the two brothers that care about each other, but it was really kind of buried with all this fault and blame that was going on. Yeah. Oh, what a, what a beautiful bridge to, to bring, you know, love into the connection, into the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, is that not ultimately what, what creates this disarmoring or this ability for people to start to put themselves in another person's shoes have you noticed that for that to really happen in a meaningful way, that there has to be a level of 
vulnerability, love, or maybe compassion present in order for that to really happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes a lot of work to get to that point because they're kind of blinded. Um, We can start the other thing you and I had a conversation about was, you know, the concept of family systems. And if we can get them looking at the family functions as an emotional unit, if they realize that whatever one is doing, it will impact the whole family. Then all of a sudden there's this kind of self accountability about, you know, do I want to be someone that builds a family or, or, you know, basically blows it up. Mm -hmm. And what is my role in that? And then it's that accountability often isn't there because as a family, we've grown up together and we kind of say whatever we want to say to each other to some degree. And, you know, it's like at some point (laughs) we need to kind of mature that a little, Mm. especially with a business, because, you know, I've seen that too, where they're yelling at each other in front of the staff and the culture is not good. So, you know, when you're talking about love, I really see it as a culture of appreciation. And I know that every relationship can be transformed if we start to look for what we appreciate about that person. It's just magical. And whether it's a marriage or, you know, a a parent or a child, um, I think that finding that appreciation is really, it's all about, you know, appreciative inquiry, like what we focus on grows. So it's really easy to look at what I don't like about that person because then I can maybe feel like I'm superior. Which is a short-lived kind of, you know, gut. That's it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm interested in, you know, exploring this, so that where, where these defenses actually come from to, to hear your thoughts on that. Because, I mean, I've seen it time and time again that everyone's wanting to be seen and heard. You know, at the, the deepest level, we all want love. An exa- example I'll often give is how many times you have a fight, say, with someone you love maybe it's a partner and you storm into the other room and slam the door or something to that effect. You know, there's right. some emotional reaction and, and you're in bed, you know, and you're just thinking to yourself, man, I wish, I wish I could just go and apologize, but you just don't, you know, and there's, mm-hmm. there's a barrier of pride or, or whatever that's getting, getting in the way, but actually deep down, you just want to go and give them a hug. Um, mm-hmm. And human behavior is so complex. You know, what what insights have you gathered through this process of why are we always getting in our own way? You know, why why are we always putting so many barriers to love from, from your experience once you've gotten the people you've facilitated to the truth and, and the vulnerability and they've had these, I'm sure, moments of revelation and reflected on, wow, all of these defenses, all of these walls, all of the, you know, the absence of appreciation and mindfulness was because of what have you seen? Well, I think part of it is, you know, how much each individual is willing to be involved in their own self-growth or accountability and, um, and getting out of that fault and blame game. Because if we look at ourselves first, there's plenty to work with. You know, it's a lifelong journey. Lifetimes probably, lifetimes I would say. <laughs> and, and it's pretty impossible to change people. So, you know, it's more about how can we engage the conversation so that we can have the intimacy and we can break down the barriers. But, you know, you talk about old patterns and I think it's what's the definition of insanity, you know, doing the same things over and over again. And I remember in my first marriage, I remember that I would run into a room slam door and like kind of fly on the bed 
And, and after about the fifth or sixth time, I'm like, why am I doing this? And part of it is learned behavior that you've had maybe through your family generations or something that something's built in you. And you have to unlock that somehow and, and just think it through. And I have more recovering conversations than I have good uh, challenging conversations. I'm better at recovering than I am at actually having the initial one. Um, Let's define this. Recovering is in like like having to sort of apologize for the the out of line behavior. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's like, yeah. like so. Like let's go back and you know, I, is it all right if we talk about what happened at the anniversary party and right. um, you know get the buy in and and then have an interaction. <laughs> <laughs> but it's seldom on the idea of having the conversation before you even have the conversation. Exactly. It's important yeah. to get permission for sure. Yeah. So, but, you know, then being able to work through, like, here's, here's what was going on for me. You know, what was going on for you? Here's how I would have liked to have done something differently. You know, and, and then being able to take some self-accountability and, and uh, rather than just avoid, like, someone said to me a long time ago that every argument you have takes a piece of the relationship away. And that doesn't mean that we can't have difficult conversations, but I think it's when we aren't willing to do any repairs. If we just have a, you know, a, a difficult, a bad conversation that doesn't go well and we don't kind of seek amends, then there is a possibility that part of that relationship is gone over time. Trust will be gone for sure. Mm, yeah so 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 it's so it's so so true i mean i my frame of this is um noticing what an absence of acknowledgement does to a human heart and a human mind and a human soul especially over an extended period of time and the way that that starts to be <clears throat> expressed in someone you know for some people maybe it's a a disempowerment where they they're shrinking you know as as a person because they haven't been seen you know mm-hmm. In, in other in other um, people, it becomes like an overcompensation. So mm-hmm. they become very demanding, you know, or or controlling um, mm-hmm. because of how much they they haven't felt acknowledged. Um, and I think once once a behavior starts to manifest like this, and I'm curious to hear you know your observations and thoughts. It's almost like it becomes so difficult then for people to see the vulnerability in in those behaviors because it's mm-hmm. not quite what it seems and. When I'm teaching about vulnerability, that's always what I lend itself to. Like we, we need to not see things as skin deep. You know, if you see someone that's really, really strong, it's probably because at some point in their life they've been really, really fragile. Mm-hmm. If you see someone, you know, really, really overbearing, it's probably because at some point they felt totally, you know, repressed or or something's happened for that to, to sort of manifest the way that it the way that it has. And um, because we're often just taking someone as they come, or that person's just strong, that person's just controlling, the, you know, and we're naming the, the behaviour and making that define, you know, that, that person's identity, automatically it cuts us off from inquiry. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the things that, that will kill, you know, a family legacy is, is if we start, you know, naming like oh well he's the youngest he's not very bright and then he lives with that and everybody agrees on it suddenly you pigeonhole this youngest brother to not be the same as or not as much as the others so yeah it it's but even I mean I think about even myself in my relationship sometimes it's easy to get into well he's the difficult one and you know 
and, and start, then I start collecting evidence for how he's difficult rather than looking at, you know, what's the situation that created that and what's my part in it? What story do I have going on? Yeah, that's, um, that's a really good point too, that, that a lot of people are not aware of that as soon as you have a, um, a bias, you know, your, your brain is literally seeking to, to confirm that bias again and again and again. Mm -hmm. um, do, do you have any examples that would maybe make that relatable for, for people listening? Or maybe uh, and that's happened in, on an extreme level with, with some of the families you've worked with hmm. and been healed. I, I just can only think of the one that I, I, I am personally involved in at the moment yeah. Um, yeah. because it's, it's one that I have to manage. You know, it's easy for me to, to, to uh, say my husband is a difficult person. He's, mm -hmm. a, he's a very um, successful, high-achieving person. There's many positives. He's mm -hmm. also very driven and can be very demanding. So I can choose one aspect of his personality instead of looking at all the things that he is, the good and the bad or the difficult. Or mm -hmm. So it's just more prevalent for me. That's my example. Yeah, that's why it dominates. But no, in, in this, there's, there's beautiful points of reflection for for all that um, so often the qualities that we actually, I mean, how true is this, that we're drawn to in someone that we initially find most attractive. Maybe it's in an intimate partner, but it could even be someone you choose to employ, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but then any intimacy, any consistent proximity with someone, there's going to be the the falling away of, of maybe the um, the initial honeymoon phase and then the over time you're left with the realities of 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 each other you know that that's more stripped back there's more of a familiarization everyone's going to lead with their best foot and the entire person gets revealed over time and I think at that point you know it's it's no different to <clears throat> to saying that love is only that that first initial feeling you know and then mm -hmm. no like love is the consistent commitment to um to choose to to meet that person where they're at and um i had the the pleasure of interviewing katie Hendricks a, a couple of years ago and uh, her work um is mostly about um relationships you know and she's um she's world class at it and she said something to me that really um that's always really stuck and she said in a relationship you're only ever making two choices you're choosing you're either choosing to move closer to that person or choosing to move further away from them Mm -hmm. and that. Um, yeah that that lens for me really because I've often said you're either choosing love or fear but when I really thought about that in the context of a, a relationship are you choosing to lean in to um become closer with that person you know and if you're not if you're choosing to pull away you know what what is it in you that's making it unbearable you know to to mm -hmm. choose that proximity or that intimacy with that that person and so often it's an absence of ability in ourselves to set the boundaries that we need you know mm -hmm. to communicate what's true for us um a judgment that maybe we've projected that we haven't brought into the space vulnerably to actually have that be worked through in a safe way and the accumulation of all of these things i think creates emotionally in us um this it's too difficult like i can't do this anymore and then we push away and how many, how many amazing relationships have ended because of that? How many amazing businesses? I mean, in your world, family legacies, I can't even imagine. You're, you're dealing with generations of hard work, 
and because, you know, a, a few people or maybe even two people didn't have the internal resources to come together, there, there isn't a way for it to, to, to carry on. And what a, what a tragedy that, that really is. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, talking about examples of, of a family business, you know, I, I've seen some families where they're not necessarily looking at their daughter as the business person that their son may be, whereas mm-hmm. the daughter has more skills and ability, but there's this bias based on, you know, their beliefs or their, their family tree and how they've looked at things. And it, it just, it's very surprising that it's so obvious to the outside world, but not in the, within the family. So there are some very talented women that are probably going to go and start their own businesses because they're not being you know, recognized and, and groomed and encouraged in the family business. So, so interesting. So, yeah, again, coming back to, to bias and, you know, do you have any advice for the uh, leader or maybe a member of a family office that isn't even aware of their, their own bias to start to like an exercise that they could do to start to, to sort of uncover what biases might be present when they're looking, looking at their ecosystem yeah, I mean, sometimes I use uh, assessments to to kind of map out here are the strengths of the family. And, you know, if we wanted to look at where are the um, roles that we need and, you know, as a, as a company is expanding, the roles are always expanding. So are the strengths aligned with the roles? And, and there sometimes we can see the misalignment and have those conversations and then, you know, try and elicit some dialogue between if it's the daughter and father about, you know, how does she see herself growing in the company? What Mm. does she want? Whereas maybe before she didn't have a voice or she wasn't um, confident enough to step up and speak to her dad. Mm. Yeah, that's so true. And if you see those biases, you know, in such a direct, obvious way, surely those same biases are being projected out into the opportunities of of where the family business could grow as well I think that that's always something that an entrepreneur is battling with you know is there a level of tunnel vision that has become so fixed Mm -hmm. um, which I think can be the shadow of having a really strong will and a strong determination Mm -hmm. um, that's blinding you from the opportunities that might be you know slightly in your peripheral yeah absolutely yeah keeping an open mind um, but let's go. Let's go back to your 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 your, your personal journey of inner destruction, um, and and in all all that we've we've talked about from building trust and acknowledgement and appreciation, I'm sure that, that these were all things that maybe you had to journey through that that um, time of, of of healing or or rebirth. Yeah, I mean, I I was really a seeker. I always wanted to learn and and develop myself. I think I was very motivated because I wanted to be a successful leader. And then, you know, I kind of went through life and, and did lots of leadership programs only to find out that the leader comes from within. It's not somebody that you become, it's more about how you interact and show up with people. So that was my journey. And then I attracted different people that could teach me different levels of, you know, okay, so that didn't work. Okay. So I'm going to be more vulnerable and say, you know, I, I guess that didn't work. I'll try something else. So that was really what brought me into, you know, the, the whole career of coaching was trying to learn to be a better leader. And it's really gotten down to such a personal job 
that mm. connects me right back to that belief of when I was six years old of like, I need to take care of myself because I can't rely on anybody else. So that's what's interesting about our life journey, isn't it? It's, there's usually a thread to why we're here, what work we do, and what the beliefs are that are underneath. The way, yeah, the way, um, the way we're challenged, you know, as a, I think so often, and so many people I've interviewed, this has been the, the moments of adversity, the things that they felt challenged by or were lacking in some way in their childhood is what they ultimately seek to um, to create, you know, whether that's in the, the intimate circle of their own life or I think through the lens of an entrepreneur for the world. Um, mm-hmm. I know for me it was it was similar, you know, that the absence of feeling safe um, and and loved made me want to love the entire world. And mm-hmm. I, I went through it, you know, at some point, probably a quarter life crisis, which was like an existential <laughs> uh, crisis in a way of like, has this all been ultimately self-serving, you know, which is one of the most confronting, <laughs> confronting questions, but I think fundamentally important questions mm-hmm. that that any leader has to ask, like what's truly driving you, especially a, a leader with a lot of drive. Mm-hmm. I've had uh, my own mentors and coaches that the ones that have challenged me the most are actually the ones that that don't put fuel to my drive. <laughs> They're the ones that are like, how would it be to neutralize your drive? You know, how, how would it be to let go of the ambition? Because that's so innately foreign internally. Um, mm-hmm. But it's been that exploration that's actually grown me the most and allowed me to recognize, okay, I can actually, and I think we have a tendency maybe as, as human beings to try and take the complexity that is life, that is the human experience and make it really black and white because it's easier to understand. You know, you're either completely self-serving or you're totally, you know, altruistic and you can't be both. And I, what I've definitely had to reconcile through this journey of these paradoxes that, yeah, like there's this part of me that wants to be that, you know, that big sister or that parent to little me and that's so much of my drive but simultaneously the journey has taught me to develop such a deep love for humanity which is also very real and very present um and it's all of it together not not this or that and I'm curious like do you see that black and white thinking play out a lot as one of the main reasons why people are not able to to maybe look at the nuances or the shades of gray and find more love and compassion um in some of these dynamics well, it's interesting because you said the word paradox and there's so many paradoxes in the family enterprises, you know, that that there's the family and then there's the individual and, you know, there's how decisions are made and it, there's all this togetherness and, and apart. And, you know, how do you be interactive in a family and be a leader, but still have some sort of sense of self and be able to manage your own emotions and be in relationship, but be able to still manage your feelings and, you know, be differentiated really as a self. Yeah, totally. What about these, like this tendency to think um, definitively as, as a way to sort of simplify what's actually a very complex or emotionally difficult situation. So that might take the form of like pre-deciding what someone is. Like maybe in the case of your husband, like you are just really difficult to work with rather than, okay, you know, what, what else could that be in, in right. and not, you know, landing on the conclusion before you've even given the other person an opportunity to, to express how maybe they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of getting away from the assumptions 
mm-hmm. into what could be rather than what you think is. Mm. Would you say that that's one of the biggest killers of um, uh, appreciation? Mm-hmm. From it's definitely own. one of them. Definitely, yeah. Let's let's maybe talk because I, I love I love that frame. You know, to to really take a to take a position. I'd love listeners to walk away with that as maybe a um, a self exercise or a challenge. How can you take an appreciative perspective on the people around you? So maybe let's let's talk through what you've noticed the key blockers to appreciation being obviously assumptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, assumptions. Um, I think judgments you know as soon as we start closing down and not being open to the possibility you know going back to that two percent truth like so if you know 98 percent of that person is difficult what's the two percent that isn't yeah yeah <laughs> um, I'm, I'm joking but no really i think it's it's really it's about um yeah not not thinking that we know the truth because we really if we can stay curious and um, be in that explorer mindset, that's when we can really uh, start being creative. You know, I, I mean, I think appreciation is a creative exercise. And um, I, I have a colleague that wherever she goes, she is always acknowledging people. And it's just like, you can just see people light up in her wake, you know, and I have a goal to be more like that because for her, it's very natural. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's certainly, you know, if we, the more we, focus on grow. So if we're focusing on what we appreciate and positivity, it's going to continue to grow it. Hmm. I really, this is a very um, interesting and, and cool sort of position on appreciation that is a creative exercise. And then looking at someone like your colleague that you're saying, you know, for her, it seems like it's really natural to just see people and acknowledge them. What, what have your reflections been on why maybe that hasn't felt like it comes so naturally for you? What are the um, of that difference? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if I was to do uh, self-evaluation, it's probably my tendency to be more conservative or reserved where she's very outgoing. But mm-hmm. it's still a skill that I can learn. I'm starting to do more of it. She just does it way better than I do. So whenever I'm with her, I just spent a weekend with her. It really makes me look at, okay, so if I'm if she's an 8 out of 10 in acknowledging other people, I'm probably about a 4 out of 10. What can I do to up my game? you know what can I look for um and it's just little simple things that people like like to be seen and loved and heard for sure Hmm. I think so so often um people do have the capacity you know to to see to see the people in front of them you Mm -hmm. know and and maybe it is as uh as simple as just a the reminder like hey rather than thinking so much about what this person thinks of me what if I'm present with with what I see in them and mm-hmm. and and coming from that place and then I guess yeah developing this muscle and then being able to actually say that you know and and um be uh forthcoming with with what you do see and what you have heard um in in others I've seen the magic of that too like so much healing especially when I was doing complex community work with communities that were, there was a lot of violence, you know, a lot of violence, a lot of disenfranchised um, stakeholders in that community and none of them were listening to each other. Everyone was blaming each other, you know, um, and it it felt, you know, sometimes like it was going to be an impossible task, but when it really came down to it, it was always can I get, you know, 
these stakeholders and maybe it was like can I get the the police to acknowledge the parents can I get the parents to acknowledge the teachers can I get the teachers to acknowledge you know the kids and really see each other and you're right it was it, it was even acknowledgement before appreciation like if you can't come up with something truly appreciative to say can you just say I acknowledge you you know it can be that that simple I'm gonna I'm gonna get out of my model of the world for a second and I'm going to acknowledge that you have an experience in this. That's probably very different to my experience of this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you start there, I mean, definitely what I've noticed is if you give someone an opportunity to share their perspective, their model of the world, and you can put the volume down on your defenses or this kind of innate like I need to answer back and I've got something to say to that. If you can just allow their perspective to actually um, move through you properly, compassion tends to be a, a very natural byproduct of that mm-hmm. and appreciation. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I think about if you're rushing through the grocery store and, uh, and you're caught up in your busyness, you may not take the time to say to the cashier, like, thanks for being here today. And yet, if, if you can be present, it's a lot easier to see the opportunities to give uh, some word of appreciation. Presence, love that. So we've got assumption, no assumptions, presence. What about um, judgment? Surely that's, um, surely that's got to be one of the key barricades to appreciation. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, we can't be in an experience of fear and love at the same time. So if we're in fear, which I think is judgment, mm-hmm. something underneath has been triggered, then we can't access love. So how are we going to think about appreciation when we're in judgment? Mm. And that's where I think it's great for us to actually try it on and, you know, make mistakes. And people might say, well, I wouldn't know what to say. I'd feel awkward. Like, especially with families who are working together day in and day out, like I think, just saying like, thanks for your commitment. Like you're, you're showing up every day, you know, mm-hmm. and putting everything into the family business. And I, I don't think we see enough of that. Just Why that acknowledgement. So Why is it so hard for people to, what is, what is that discomfort? Cause I'm sure like for a lot of people at the start of their journey, they feel the tension. They're like, Oh, that would be so uncomfortable to say. So intense to say, Why? I think it's just being out of practice. I mean, it's really a practice, right? So trying, trying it on. And I mean, I, I love what you said about listening can be just as good as appreciation to actually really listen to that person and not uh, have constant measurement of like, do, is what they're saying and believing measuring up to what I believe and say, or am I just going to listen and yeah. appreciate them for their differences and be able to be curious and learn? Okay, I think this is this is really this is really great. So, what what then is kind of the next the next step if both parties have um, listened? And I think it's important to break down the mechanics because it's very few people that have ever been taught how to really genuinely reconcile conflict, right? And I, I feel like that's what we're we're touching on here is is conflict resolution, the basic mm-hmm. skills of that, yeah. um, which can be applied in all relationships in our lives. Surely, you know. Um, so being able to listen and then when both parties have listened, um, you know, maybe they don't, they don't agree um, with each other's perspective. And if that's the case, what, what's kind of the next, 
what's the next stage in being able to truly resolve that conflict? Yeah, well, I think so they're talking about their feelings, obviously, they're talking about their realities, and, and their reality might be different than the other person. But the point is to be able to actively listen and paraphrase it back. So their reality is their reality, it might not be yours, but it's more about being open to know what their reality is. Mm-hmm. And then from there, share, you know, what, acknowledge what what your role is in the communication. and you know, ask for what they need, like really get into what are the needs and wants that aren't being expressed and then find out, you know, if they were to um, move forward, what would need to happen? And, you know, each situation is different. Like there's, we have the formula for having difficult conversations, but when we're in the thick of it, I think the most important thing is just, I always like to plan ahead to try and write out what I'm going to say so that I have an idea and to be able to do it when my whole brain's working, not just my reptile brain in yeah. reaction. <laughs> and also be aware of like, what are my, what are my thoughts about having difficult conversations? Like what are, are my experiences about conflict in the past and where might I get triggered and where would that create a bias? But really look at, you know, what is the, the goal is love and understanding and going in with the intention of like, no matter what, mm. what we want is understanding. It's not about, I'm going to come out of this feeling right. Mm. No, I want to come out with some better understanding. And I mean, I, I have um, a daughter-in-law, which I've had, you know, a few different situations with that are challenging. And we respect each other's differences, but we have to, we often have to walk through having those conversations in order to not have anxiety build up or tension or, you know, the family can start distancing. You don't want any of that. You want to keep the family together. Mm. Yeah. I think um, so true. You know, when these things are spoken to and held in the right way um, and those steps taken, that's what's ultimately on the other side. It's all that tension that takes so much energy. It's like whatever you're trying to avoid, it's just always there. (laughs) You're trying to avoid it, but it actually becomes entirely consuming um or whoever you're trying to avoid you know they they start showing up everywhere at the local coffee shop at petrol station you know it's like all of a sudden they're everywhere um yeah because there's so much energy that goes into that avoidance yeah this is um this is really helpful so if we were to break that formula down into something that could be you know actioned to to really practice active listening and then to determine on each side what are the 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 needs um maybe the wants needs and and feelings and then to hear each other out in in what maybe would need to to occur or happen for that to feel complete yeah and sometimes it's like what do we what do we agree on or where we align might help um or what do we appreciate about each other that might also help because you know you can get in there and really intensely try and work through a difficult conversation but there's a softening that can happen if like what I will often do if I'm facilitating it, I will say, um, and what's your desire? What's underneath your desire to resolve this conversation? Usually it's like, well, I, I care about this person. So mm-hmm. state that, you know, I care about our relationship. I, you know, we're a family. I want us to stick together. And so you're sort of, you're confirming what the reason is mm-hmm. before you get into resolving the conflict. Yeah, that's really, really, really good advice. I can't just 
tell you how um, in these experiences facilitating so often, it's really just about getting getting to that core. Like what, what are you actually, what's actually the truth? Like how many times have you noticed that you're yelling at someone you love and, and deep down you're, you're, you actually know, I just want to be close to this person. Mm-hmm. But, you know, imagine how different that would shift the situation, the dynamic. And instead of yelling, you actually just said, I really want to be close to you right now. Mm-hmm. You know, if you led with that vulnerability mm-hmm. and that that honesty, it diffuses because it's truth. You know, it diffuses usually um, so much of the the escalation and 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 the heat. We really do overcomplicate it. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Victoria, this has been so great, and I think uh, I know that that our listeners are going to take so much from this, and I hope that they really, you know, take the invitation to apply some of these um, philosophies, thinking, strategies to the relationships in their life from the two, the the two percent truth. I love that. I'm de- I'm going to be taking that. Um, I think away from this conversation, all the way through to um, eliminating the barriers to appreciation and how to how to resolve conflict you know, in the simplest, most effective way. There's so much wisdom in in all of that. Um, so thank you so much. How can these guys learn more about you or um, work with you if, if that was resonant for them? Thanks. Um, well, I've got a website, LegacyFamilyBusiness.com, and um, usually I just do an exploratory conversation with someone and see what their needs are, and we go from there. Amazing. And um, we'll put that in the footnotes. So I don't you have to worry about spelling it out. Thank you. Uh, yeah, of course. What's, um, what would some final sort of uh, words of wisdom be to, to leave um, or exit out of this, this conversation today through the journey that we've taken these guys on? Um, you know, I'm kind of left with like, as we're in this, with this anxiety or, we're looking at our bias or we're looking at how we need to have a better conversation with someone. I think it's like going back to like, who do I want to be? What kind of a person do I want to be for the sake of what? And then that takes us more into what's the benefit of me going through this process. And that, you know, dealing with difficult conversations is really a, a great way to build capacity to manage stress and to build skills and the people that avoid them. Uh, end up often not having relationships because the relationships uh, eventually break down because there's no resolution. Mm, that is so, so, so powerful. You know, keep keep in the front of your mind and your heart as you go through because it is hard. It is hard growing. You know, it is hard having hard conversations, keeping in mind, you know, the why, the reason. Um, yeah, I'd love even just to quickly hear your your perspective on how that informs legacy because I know that legacy work is so much of what you do with mm-hmm. um, with with families like how core maybe if a family member has been disconnected from that legacy how core has that um insight that self-insight been to reconnecting them to that legacy helping them see who they want to be in the world mm-hmm. um, and as a leader yeah absolutely I mean I think that uh, when I think about families and conflict and challenges i i've often said well 
if there's a person that's passed away, like what would your grandfather feel about the way you're interacting with each other right now? You know, that there's, there's a legacy to it and, you know, we can make that legacy, whatever we want. And what I like about looking for who's the family leader and who can actually influence the family, who can help us create that legacy. And then having everybody individually talk about what is that legacy to them? Because again, we get back to different perspectives that each member's reality might be very different about what that legacy is, but having them define it still connects it to what is the overall legacy? What are our shared values, but how do I see that in myself? How can I be a part of that? Yes. 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 I think that that's, even if you, even if you don't run a business, you know, and, and you're hearing that, that wisdom and that perspective, I really do think it's one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves in, in our lifetime. Who do I really want to be in the world? And, you know, inadvertently asking, who do I want to be remembered as? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is um is such a powerful point of inquiry. Thank you so much for the generosity of your um your spirit and your wisdom. I've totally loved this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I love to chat with you all the time. <laughs>